This is Fortress on a Hill. Thank you for joining us. I'm Henry. And I'm Danny. We're here to tear apart recent stories about our nation's armed forces and our veterans. We hope you'll take a critical look at what's happening with our military. And we hope you enjoy the show. Now, let's get started. So, hey, listeners, here we are with a, uh, a special bonus episode for you. We are going to do a, a breakdown and discussion about Black Hawk Down. It's a, a film that was really a big part of why I ended up joining the military. And I think that it makes perfect, uh, somewhat cinematic fodder for our, uh, our times here. And uh, joining myself and Danny today is a... Uh, Fan of the podcast and friend of mine, he is uh, BT, known online as the War Philosopher. How's it going, brother? Good. How are you? I'm doing all right. So, why don't you give us the uh, the short and skinny about you and your time in the military, and uh, take it from there. Um. So, I my birthday is September 11th, and my birthday was spent as my like first week in high school, and. Uh, this was in 2001, so I mean, my birthday was ruined by the actions of a couple people, and it really, you know, shaped to this day. It still shapes what's going on. But as a you know, 14 year old kid, you watch these videos of the towers falling over and over. It's kind of hard to think that there's not going to be uh, something that leads you to joining the military. And I mean. The Black Hawk Down definitely played a huge role because it was, you know, such a, I mean, cinematically beautiful uh, piece of propaganda. And so I joined back in 2005 and I spent nine years in. I did three years as a uh, cavalry scout. uh, And then I did my last six years as a uh, a Black Hawk crew chief and a mechanic. Uh, so I've got a view from both sides, both being on the ground and being in the air. And, uh, you know, obviously I've got some things to say about it because I've done a few deployments. Uh, yeah, I think that covers it. All right, cool. Well, it's glad, I'm glad to have another cavalry scout on. Um, I spent my whole career in cav units and uh, I guess I still have a, little bit of a romance for the cavalrymen thing even though the you know the shades have kind of been <laughs> pulled up and the curtain uh kind of brought to the side so that i can see what's really going on but i still maintain some romance of the cab yeah it's a uh, definitely an interesting culture within the military i mean in the phrase when we say uh sorry i was like even even the way that you know if you want to know about an organization, so let me just look at their motto and their traditions. And like, we, we used to say like, if you ain't Cavs, you ain't shit. Like a formation every day. Mm-hmm. And that was, that was just sort of the attitude. And I think it's very uh, instructive to that organization. Yeah. So I wanted to begin talking about some examples of mythic action in the movie. And what, what do I mean by mythic action? We, uh, the, the cavalry charge, the horse charge from 12 strong. That's what I mean by mythic action. Something that it, it wasn't historically accurate, but it added something really incredible to the film. Now, for the purposes of Black Hawk Down, 
it's just about ordinary human abilities and a single shot to the engine block. There's a scene where a group of Delta operators are a single once a sniper is able to shoot one bullet into a car and disable it that way. Now, I don't know if a sniper can actually do that. At a certain size round, it, it, it doesn't matter. It's a 50 cal, it just takes out the engine, so there's just no more engine. Um, but I feel like th that, that was a continuing theme through the movie when Hoot tells his commander, this is my safety, sir. You know, it, it, ordinary army people, we, we, we can't behave that way. We can't speak that way. We can't, we can't even really think that way because we work on rules. We work on regulations. And I think that was also part of the myth that if you're in the army long enough or you love the army long enough, you can make it to this mythical epic force. You know, kind of put it out there in the sky. It's something to work towards. Granted, most people who try for Delta don't even don't ever get it close just because of how hard it is. Um, one of the wounded Delta operators switched hands. He went from firing, I think he was firing left-handed to right-handed while he was wounded while firing and protecting his his uh, his down bird. Now, I, I, I don't have any argument about the left and right-handed things. Lots of really good shooters can shoot both ways. But again, it just adds a little bit of fluff to that. You know, when I, I think that one of the things that bothered me about 12 Strong and, and looking back, Black Hawk Down is exactly what you're saying. Um, mythologizing of heroism in the absence of context is particularly bothersome. And I'll get into that a little more later because I have some comments about the way most contemporary war films um they, they literally um, get rid of any context. I mean, the, the, the complete absence of nuance. And so it becomes, the story becomes a, about the mythical hero, you know, heroism rather than a broader character study or study of human nature and the nature of war and violence. And it's like, you know, it, as, a, as, a, as a young male in our, you know, patriarchal, society, which you have to be honest, we live in one, um, oh, yes. it is very difficult not to be enamored by those actions that you're describing. I mean, these superhuman events. And, 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 and at a certain point, that becomes the story. I mean, in the absence of any context of like, why are we there? Or is this a fight worth having? Um, it, it, you know, what happens to these guys after they come home? You know, what's the, you know, all that is, is sort of erased in the interest of the, the horse charge and false straw, you know, or, um, or some of the, the items in Black Hawk Down that you described. And I mean, they screened Black Hawk Down at West Point um, while I was there. I can't remember in what context, but I mean, it was, that film was highly, highly just lauded by soldiers and um, Sergeant Eversman. That, that was his name, right? One of the main characters. Yeah. He, I mean, he, he, he came and spoke at West Point. That wow. may have been when they screened it. Yeah. He spoke to the whole core cadets, right? An E7, you know, at that point he was an E7. He was still in, he was still in at that point. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, just the mythologizing of that story was, in, was incredibly powerful. And like I said, it's, it is seductive for young males in particular. So I wanted to mention about, uh, about the title a little bit. 
And titles of films, especially war films, are, 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 are chosen really carefully. And by choosing the words Black Hawk Down, they, they really wanted a, a very emotional reaction to hearing it. You know, it wasn't called the Mogadishu Mile. It wasn't called the Battle of Mogadishu. It was the words of the most emotional part of the entire film. That's the title of the film. Um, and it's something that, that as soldiers is, is a, it's, I wouldn't call it an oddity, but that the movie has an instance where, where over the radio, the first soldier is declared killed in action, um, by a, by a Lieutenant Colonel, no less. We don't say that on the radio. We don't say that we've lost somebody. We might say somebody's down or somebody needs aid. But to tell everyone listening over the net that one of your brothers in arms is gone in the middle of a battle, we don't do that. We, we deliberately choose not to do that because we've finally gotten to the point where leaders understand the power in that. And we also take very specific procedures when somebody goes down. For example, in the film, immediately prior to them leaving for the big battle, a bunch of the operators and rangers talk on the phone. Prior to big missions and after big missions when there are wounded or KIAs, we get blacked out. All of our media, all of our ability to talk home gets blacked out to ensure that the families of those lost get properly notified. They're not notified on CNN or notified by somebody's buddy that, that was there. That's a different, an entirely different topic to talk about that. But they do try to make it so that errant information doesn't scare the shit out of family members. It doesn't mean family members don't get the shit scared out of them from time to time, but they try really hard to not do that. Um, so for the... Correct me if I'm wrong. They, they said his name on the radio too, right? They, they, they didn't use his battle roster number, right? No, no. His, 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 his full name, uh, Dominic Pilla, P-I-L-L-A, right. was, the, was the first guy that fell. In the, yeah, they did. They said his full name over the net. Yeah. Yeah, of course, that's, you know, I mean, I've lost soldiers and, and there is a there is a point where the patrol leader reports to headquarters that what his casualty situation is but where we use coding essentially and we use a battle roster number which at least in my unit was like the first initial and, and last initial of your name followed by like the last four of your social security numbers so this way the people back at base even are you know when they hear there's kia or wia they don't know like it's their buddy they don't know you know the names aren't really out there so once you could figure it out back at base yeah, um, yeah. But yeah, we certainly would never just say the name over the net. Uh, I worked in uh, the battalion tactical operations center for like the first 18 months that I was in the scout unit because I kind of got screwed over by not being told that I shouldn't say that I know how to use a computer because this was still 2005. <laughs> um, but before I ended up leaving there we had this one like big operation that was going on and i was i was the battalion rto and one of our units got into contact and this was in mosul and if i remember correctly i think like a bradley threw a track so they're trying to they're trying to retrack this thing they're getting hit with mortars uh and, you know, I'm just, I'm just going, I'm writing things down as I hear it, and I'm not talking because that's what you're supposed to do. And our 
the S3 came in, uh, this major, and he asked me for an update. I gave him the things that I knew. And uh, he asked for me to get more information from them. And I was like, sir, you know, they're, they're actively in combat. I don't think that they're going to talk to us right now. Like, I mean, because they're getting shot at. And uh, this went back and forth a couple times until uh, the, the major said, <laughs> said to me, he's like, get, me on, get them on the radio or I will rip your fucking heart out. Like, in the middle of the talk, if, uh, going to show you know, poor leadership, poor ability to handle uh, a lack of information uh, right. is, I, I think, a, a huge problem. And it's not, it's definitely not something that is uh, characterized, especially in the movie, because there comes a point where Eversman is, you know, yelling that. I forget what it is, but, you know, they're in contact or something like that. And uh, the ranger captain was like, I need you to calm down because I can't understand anything that you're saying. And instead of calming down and trying to be a uh, tactical kind of leader, he just screams it a couple more times. And then he says, fuck it, and throws the radio off to the side, accomplishing absolutely nothing uh, because he hasn't passed any real information along. No, it's it's uh, it's a it's a it's a view of life that most ordinary people don't deal with. Um, trying to pass information between two people who who want to pass the information, and it being so volatile that it doesn't give you the room to take a breath. You have to in those moments you almost have to force yourself to stop and take the breath over the immediate emotions of the of the scene. Go ahead, Danny. Yeah, I mean, I was going to agree with that. I mean, I've seen that situation as well. It's um, commanders and staffs, especially senior commanders and staffs, um, they live for information. I mean, they want to know. They cannot handle a darkness of information yeah. or even a, a, a blackout. I mean, most senior commanders and staffs are not very disciplined and are constantly badgering on the net in the middle of fights because they, they in their mind, psychologically, and I think emotionally as well, need perfect information. Of course, it doesn't exist, right? So uh, perfect knowledge, perfect understanding of what's going on in a fight is, is, uh, is impossible, even after the fact. No two people remember it the same way. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, it, I think it, it, it's a, it's a, it speaks to human nature, especially for more senior commanders. They, um, they become obsessed with information, perfection, and, of course, they never get it. Uh, a question I would have uh, for you, Danny, is do you think that this chaos and the the need to have information comes with all of the advancement of technology that we have with you know GPS and Blue Force Tracker and UAV feeds and all these different radios as opposed to back in, you know, not even that long ago when we were far more analog uh, military, do you think that's contributing to the chaos? I think it, that's a really good point. It absolutely is. Uh, I watched the technology change even over the course of two deployments that were pretty well spread out. So I was a platoon leader in Baghdad in 06 and 07. I had a scout platoon. And, you know, we had a lot of, you know, we had GPS, we had Blue Force Tracker in our Humvees. Um, 
you know, we had a pretty good amount of, of information. But our talk was still just a single screen of Blue Force Tracker and like two radios or maybe four radios. You know, that was the troop level, company level talk. Um, I c- come back now to Afghanistan in 2011. And in those four years that had elapsed, I mean, the amount of technology I had even in a company level, troop level talk was unbelievable. I had like six flat screen TVs. I had drone feeds. I had cameras on each of the, each of the towers that were like real time looking out at stuff. I could add another screen. So if I got, um, so if I had a drone feed, but then maybe I also would get um, some sort of fixed wing and I'd get that. I mean, it was unbelievable. And, and the problem with it is, is that's all great, but there's still friction on the battlefield and you never have a perfect picture of what's going on. But because commanders can see so much and can track so much, they're even less patient with information flow because the expectation becomes, I should be able to see and react in real time instantly. And it's a myth. I mean, it's, it's, it's a, you know, it's like a golden city you're never going to find. It's a, it's a mythical place, this perfect knowledge. And I, I definitely think that we have become reliant on our technology. We've become spoiled by our technology. And I think it, ha- it does have sometimes a toxic effect on leadership. So I wanted to discuss some of the scenes and some of the dialogue and, uh, excuse me, shots. And the film opens with this incredibly, incredibly long montage of starving Somalis, or that's the, that's the effect that they're trying to, to portray. And it talks about the, the nature of famine as it existed in the few years before the Battle of Mogadishu. What it does not mention, what it doesn't talk about at all, and I don't think it's referenced in the movie in any way, is the level of famine that was happening in Somalia and in the sur- that surrounding area of Africa during that time, and that the famine, uh, having that horrible drought, for, I want to say it was either two or three consecutive years, played a far bigger role in causing the Battle of Mogadishu than um, uh, Muhammad Faradi, the, the warlord that we was, were after, the warlord they were after in the film. But it's not mentioned at all. It, it doesn't. It, we, we're not looking... To look outside this perfect picture of American military might, we're not to look at other factors, other non-military factors, um, and ones that you can't deal with with a gun. How do you? How there is no American military might that's going to deal with an actual humanitarian disaster. That's not what troops are trained for. Um, and I also felt that some of the other shots, the establishing shots. It could have been really any faceless Muslim country. You know, the, the mm-hmm. shadows, the towers, the people praying. Um, you know, it, 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 it really just left an outline of what a, uh, a citizen of Somalia could be and not any kind of actual agency. I mean, the I Somalis, The Somalis are almost faceless in that movie. Yes, yeah, yeah. Looking at it, and I mean, because obviously I've seen from the ground and from the air, I didn't see any difference between the the set that they called Mogadishu and Mosul in Iraq. It, no different than Baghdad in Iraq. Like, it's all the same, the exact same characteristics. And you say there's no focus in, specifically on the actual issues, like with, with the famine, you know, you mentioned that they don't talk about any of the reasons why it occurred, 
when I was flying over uh, the the Baghdad area, you can see just hundreds of thousands of acres of former farmland where you see all of the the uh, water channels cut into the ground and you can obviously see where farming used to take place but there's none of that anymore because all the infrastructure for the water is destroyed and even today uh there's a lot coming on about saying how there's going to be a famine in iraq how they're running out of water because iran and the other uh countries upriver are damming and taking so much of the water that there's nothing left in the the Tigris and the Euphrates for the Iraqi people. And famines and things like this don't occur in a vacuum, but that's definitely the way I see the way that they are presenting it in Black Hawk Down. That gets to the big point I wanted to make today, which is the subtraction of context from almost all war movies, and I think Black Hawk Down is a great example. I mean, Black Hawk Down um, fails to communicate to the to the viewer what I think it should, which is that the victims in that movie are Somali. They're not Americans. That's not because I think Americans were evil and just shooting down Somalis for fun. Um, they certainly had their reasons once you get into combat to just fight for your life. But these, the Somalis are completely subtracted from the story. There are very few Somali characters. There is very little context given to the famine, um, very little context given to the shift from humanitarian uh, mission, which is how it started, that's how our mission started until the transition to a more kinetic anti-warlordism. And in a sense, Muhammad Farah Adid and, and, and the warlords, as they're depicted, um, they make for this perfect faceless monster so that it becomes a, a tale of good guy, bad guy. Uh, without any nuance, and uh, the enemy becomes a faceless other that is easy, therefore, to kill. Um, and therefore, empathy is only demonstrated when an American is hit, when an American goes down. Nothing is really said about uh, Somali civilians who were killed in the crossfire, of which there were many, inevitably. Um, very little is, is said about the suffering of these people in a broader sense that brought us there, or the Cold War context that helped destroy that country. Um, it's a complete subtraction of nuance and context. And, and, and I could say the same thing about almost every war movie. We could, we could talk about any war movie, like Lone Survivor or 12 Strong. I mean, whatever. The, these movies don't tell us anything about the wars. They just tell us about brothers in arms yeah. fighting the good fight. And, and, and that's, that's um, rewarding to a lot of people because it's a great story. It's an extraordinary amount of action and drama, but it, it misses the broader themes of like human nature, which I think are much more important. And Vietnam films did a much better job of depicting because they were critical films because it's a critical look at war. There's, there's actually a line where, um, Eversman is talking to Hoot before, before the mission begins and Eversman has questions. You know, I, I, he asks a lot of questions, but they're all very, uh, ambiguous ones. I thought in terms of questioning the mission, but who told him, he said, once that first bullet flies past your head, politics and all that other shit goes right out the window. And that is true for combatants. That is true for active people in a combat situation. It's not, a, it's not an American invention. But in my mind, as a young man, that line told me that war and politics are not always synonymous. 
that they can be mutually exclusive depending on the situation. And that's a complete falsehood. It, 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 as we've been talking about, nothing happens in a vacuum, but that became part of my mantra, you know, telling people if you weren't there, you didn't know. You know, I did that before I even joined because I so firmly believed in some of those ideas. But we can't, we can't divest war or the war machine from the politics that enable it. I think it's very dangerous to do so, yeah. I wanted to hit on one of the mythic actions, uh, specifically that the the single shot to the engine block, because I know it was brought up. Uh, now, obviously, I, I never shot a sniper rifle from a Blackhawk, uh, nor have I watched anybody do it, but there was that the story of whatever, the, the Navy SEALs that shot the pirates on the, the was it like the Maersk? And he did it from like 20 miles away, standing on one foot and ocean swells. Like he man, he managed the shot. Well, even if you're the best shot that there is, you have to include the fact that there's different aerodynamic effects on rounds that you shoot, depending on what side of the helicopter that you're on, because you have a, a, a giant fan on top of you that is spinning in one direction. So, you know, as a machine gunner on the Black Hawk, depending on whether you're on the left seat or the right seat, you have to compensate. And once I don't remember which goes which, but on one side, it's, you know, high and left and the other one, it's low and right. Um, to have the idea that a single sniper round is going to puncture the engine and bring the vehicle to a halt is definitely falls as far as I'm concerned into, you know, the, the realm of mythicism. How does that, how does the rotor action change from between hovering and actually moving towards something? Like is it, uh, if the helicopter was completely stable and sitting in one spot, would it have been easier or, or how does that work? Uh, well, from the aerodynamic standpoint, you have, uh, I, I believe the blade rotate. Yeah. Bl- uh, the rotor spins counterclockwise. So if you think about, you're going to have a scooping motion over the back of the aircraft and more of a thrusting motion over to the left side, just without the, it's spinning. And for hovering, there's two different types of hovering, whether you're in ground effect or out of ground effect. And basically the way you know is, are you kicking up? dust if you're low enough that you're hovering and you're kicking up dust then you're in ground effect you're having uh the rebound the resistance from the the uh movement of air uh but if you're out of ground effect you're not you're not disturbing and you don't have the added turbulence um okay yeah i kind of lost my i just want to back up i I just want to back up one more second and talk about what you brought up, Henry, which is this whole idea of war is only about brotherhood and the guy next to you and politics don't matter. Um, I, I sort of, um, unlike a lot of soldiers, I reject that. Um, while I recognize that it's true that in the moment you're just in survival mode and it doesn't really matter, that's true, but I think a film owes us more than that story because 
having to tell someone that their uh, husband or son is uh, is dead and, and to actually communicate to a family um, and answer their questions, you know, having done that, and it's some of the worst experiences of my life, I, I think it's vital to have a reason. I mean, I, the day that I stopped being able to tell them what their sons died for, um, because I no longer believed in the politics, because I no longer understood um, the reasoning or the purpose for American occupation in the Middle East. Once that happened, that's really when I turned against the war because um, our soldiers deserve to fight for something besides each other. They do. If we put our soldiers in harm's way, there better be a damn good reason. There better be a damn good political reason. There better be an actual threat to the United States. And, uh, and, and I ought to be able to communicate that to my soldiers seamlessly. And I, w- I would argue that since 9-11, we have never been able to do that. And, uh, and even back in 1993, in October, when Black Hawk Down goes, goes off or the battle kicks off, I mean, that, that was a really, really complicated situation and a lot of nuance involved. And, you know, I want to know a little bit more about politics. And I think a film owes us that because uh, a perfect war film like Platoon, for example, which I know that's a controversial statement, but a film like Oliver Stone's Platoon mixes the Brotherhood combat theme, which is there, with the nature of the brutality and mindlessness uh, and chaos of the Vietnam War. It it manages to do both. In other words, you don't have to extract one in order to do the other. I mean, you you can have both, and I think a better movie would have both, but almost every war film that's been made since Black Hawk Down has really been little more than propaganda for the heroism of American militarism. Absolutely. Uh, There was a quote, I think it was one of the last lines of the film, where Sergeant Eversman was talking again. He said, I was talking to Blackburn the other day, and he asked me, what's changed? Why are we going home? And I said, nothing, uh, end quote. That's not true either. I think everything's changed. I know why I've changed. You know, a friend of mine asked me before I got here, it's when we were all shipping out, he asked me, why are you going to fight somebody else's war? What, do you think you're heroes? I didn't know what to say at the time, but if he'd asked me again, I'd say no. I'd say there's no way in hell nobody asks to be a hero. It just turns out that way sometimes. And I read this, and 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 it it it, it has it has nothing to it. You know, the, the none of the, the the barely bare questions that they asked in the movie are even hinted at as to the other reasons, the other the other things. And like you said, Danny, you know what the. What were these soldiers being told? What were they being told was the mission? You know, was the mission to secure Somalia? Was it to bring humanitarian aid to Somalia? I know the Rangers and the Delta, they were told to go there and kick ass. That's the reason we send them. They're not ever sent for any kind of humanitarian anything. Um, but yeah, no, they, they, they want us to see all this death and all this carnage and attach it to the military without any other subtext. That, that's that's exactly what I see here. I and that's go ahead. I I really hate the whole concept of you know making every soldier uh, military personnel into the idea of this hero um, because all of us who spent more than two days in the military know that it's not true. I know I've, I've been listening to a lot of podcasts from everybody and we all pretty much have the same exact story 
and reality wake up that, you know, we go into the military thinking that we're going to be with this higher caliber person that, you know, we're all joining for the same mission. We all have the same goals and we're all going to, you know, work fluidly together. And then you get there and it's just an utter shit show. And the, the unit, when you first get into combat, you know, everything's in my opinion, weird until you have that first casualty, because once you have that first casualty, well, now you have a hook or not the people in charge have the hook because the, the first, the first casualty that, uh, happened i was on i was on the radio and i took that call one of the first things that i heard is oh well you know now we have to go kill more iraqis otherwise you know so and so has died in vain that that that's a really that's a really big one that you hear a lot especially from more of the you know maybe extended families of gold star or uh you know people that have a slight um, exposure to it, but they don't see any of the reality of things that if you, if you take the perspective that one person dying needs to be avenged, then my, my question that's never been able to been answered is what makes us any different than the hijackers that we were told we started to go to war over. That's a great point. I, I reject that as well. And to me, what you're describing, and, and I've lived it as well, is the formula for perpetual war. Mm-hmm. If the reason we have to stay, because I heard that justification all the time from people from the rank of colonel to general to fucking president of the United States. Um, if we leave now, the death of those hundreds or those dozens, or in the case of platoon, those few uh, soldiers will, will have been in vain. And, and if that becomes the, re- the only reason you're fighting, then you really need to relook at your motives because, you know, I happen to think we are in a forever war. And I happen to think that this war could go on for 30 years. I mean, I, I, I am very pessimistic. I don't see anything changing anytime soon. I believe we'll be in Afghanistan at least to the 20th anniversary, which is coming up next month. We'll be the 17th, but at least to the 20th we'll get, if not further. Another thing I saw happen was... And, and you probably saw this change, too. Um, initially, we named a lot of our combat outposts and bases after dead soldiers. Mm-hmm. Um, and only later in my career did we start naming them after actual Iraqi and Afghan things. We started actually putting an Afghan name on them. And one of the reasons that uh, I was told, and it really made sense to me, was, you know, sometimes we have to close bases down and leave a place because the war can't go on forever. But, you know... I used to be at a place that used to be called Top Fitzpatrick. Well, it was named after a kid that got killed in the last tour. And it's like, if we're going to turn that over or burn the place or, or, or bulldoze it or turn it over to the Afghan army, you know, people don't want to do that. Cause they're like, no, like it's named after one of our soldiers. We can't give this ground up. You know, people died for it. And it's just, if that's the only reason that the war is perpetuating, if that's, if that's the only inertia for the war, I think it's really dangerous. And, and movies do a really poor job of preparing us, um, because they take they, they subtract all the nuance and they subtract all the context. I, I think a little bit beyond because obviously cinema and Hollywood plays its own role, but I place you know just as much blame on what 
used to be called like the media and journalism and everything, which I think is completely dead. Uh, I mean, for all intent and purposes, but there's no visualization of the war. I mean, I remember September 11th. I don't know how long it took, but I'm pretty sure it was in within a couple hours. Fox News had the new little banner underneath the, the ticker tape that was like America at war, America under attack. And, you know, you've got all these flag graphics flowing in the background. And I mean, it, it's just more of this idea of propaganda. So if you go to the cinema, you you're you're getting this propaganda. If you're watching the news, you get this propaganda. If you happen to listen to like any public affairs issues or anything and no nowhere is this critical question being asked you know why are we doing this we have no goals that were set up and we're basically just waiting for the next atrocity to happen so that we can have a new cool movie about it and another reason to yeah. just walk back into war mm-hmm. it's interesting because the i'm sorry but the it's, it's so true that the media becomes cinematic itself. And I remember that moment where it was like America in Iraq or America at war and the flags and the Eagles. And it's like screaming across the screen. And instead of like, a, a, you know, objective reporting on, on, on the, the horror and, and um, chaos that is war, it's like, it becomes a film. I mean, because news is for profit. So news is entertainment by its very nature. Right. And, and of course that's not how it should be, but it's, but it's the reality that we live in, right? There's choose your flavor of news that you like, and then you know, enjoy the entertainment. You know, do you like liberal entertainment or do you like conservative entertainment? Either way, what you're getting is entertainment rather than genuine reporting in most cases. Um, so I think it's important to de- I, I really like your point, how you demonstrate that, media and Hollywood are much more uh, related and inextricably linked than we often think. I wanted to say one more thing and then I'll uh, let the, the conversation go, but you, you uh, sparked my memory. Even when you, like, if you try to say, okay, well, here's a, a journalist topic. Here's, you know, uh, uh, Anderson Cooper, you know, standing out there and being shot at under NVGs. We, we get these, you know, like, okay, well, that's the war. That's, that is what is going on. But then I forget the, I forget the journalist's name, but I know it was, you know, it was brought up that Bill O'Reilly, you know, was lying about his so-called combat uh, journalism that it turned out he wasn't even in the same country, I think, that the war that he said he was reporting on. And, um, there was a journalist in Afghanistan or Iraq. Uh, I can't remember, but like he made up this entire war story and then they came out like, Oh, well this is, you know, completely inflated or, uh, I don't remember the details, but he went away for like six months and then he just came back and stepped right into being a reporter again. Uh, I think it's Brian Williams. Right. This is the Brian Williams case. Yeah, I, th- I think so. I think, I think it was Brian Williams. Yeah, because he got a new job on MSNBC. I mean, you're right. He disappeared for about six months. No, his his entire reputation as a journalist was done then. I, I, I can't stand to see his face on TV anymore. It, it, that that and, and, and But it's a very common thing, and it happens with veterans too because, you know, we don't always, in having discussions, we don't always break out our resumes and kind of who did what. And so I know there's a lot of posturing among veterans about who fought harder, who went – 
through the most things, um, you know, and, and that leads me to talk, on a, I wanted to talk a little bit about escalation. And there are a couple events I wanted to cover that really escalated the hatred of our participation in, uh, in Somalia on, on the whole. Um, we had uh, that before, after the Marines left, when UN forces were still there, that 25 Pakistani troops were killed when they were raiding a weapons depot. Um, but it ha- just so happened that the weapons depot they were raiding was beneath the radio station that Adid and his followers were using at the time, and they were concerned that he was going to shut down the radio station. Um, but we had that happen as, a, as an escalation you know, towards us, and then there was also a missile strike on a meeting that he had taken place. I can't remember if it happened before or after the 25 Pakistani troops were killed, but essentially what this is, it was a drone strike. It was, it had, it, you know, no, no active combatants, just a giant missile that comes out of nowhere, kills a bunch of people. And seeing in the documentary about the, about the battle, um, former ambassador to Somalia, Robert Oakley, um, I think he called it right when he said that whatever, whatever participants, whatever political affiliations the participants at that meeting went in with when they came out, they were all radicals because for them, the calculus has changed. It had become something different. And I think it was just a horrible, horrible choice on the military's part to use a missile strike at that point. Um, And they were also doing profile missions. They were doing low-flight, low-altitude profile missions over the city. And Danny, you and I have talked I don't know how many times about the fear and chaos it puts into a person having American military power fly over you all the time, wondering when it's your turn. Absolutely. And Yeah, and most of that was all subtracted from the story as well. And from the film, I mean. I mean, that the, the, the lead-up to this was not sufficiently covered no no they didn't cover it with any with any kind of authenticity and um there was also what they were telling the media the uh the clinton administration told the media that the rangers and delta force were there in a very limited role and that they specifically would not go after a deed and when they got in country that is exactly what they did there's 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 no question about it that just by having them there it, it upped the ante in, in all kinds of ways. You bring this very aggressive force in who wants their guys. They want their bad guys so they can move on to their next deployment. You know, Rangers get deployed. Uh, we heard from Spencer last episode about the, the quick pace of missions and, and such. Um, and then the downing of the birds. Uh, we, don't, we don't think about those, those escalations, but it's really important to understand it in the context of a battle. Um, our guys go in, they take that one building, um, and now the militias are fighting because they don't, they're, they're bringing in everybody they can, because at that point, they don't know exactly what the Americans have planned to do. So they escalate hard, and they take out two birds. Now the Americans are on the escalation side again, and we have this, this kind of combat one-upsmanship where the, th- the thing, you know, like we're... we're taking the current hatred, whatever we have at that moment, and depending on how close we were to it, and dragging it into the next battle. And it just becomes bigger and bigger and bigger. And, yeah, it just it seems like a very apt analogy for how our war state 
operates these days. Um, yeah, it's, it's a really, it's a really good point. Uh, a couple things, and then I would like to, you know, start specifically talking about the whole uh, flight aspect of Black Hawk Down. But I don't know what the structure of the military was back in this time, but it would seem to me that a more reasonable approach trying to have this hat of a humanitarian effort is why didn't civil affairs personnel go in? People that are, I don't know, again, I don't know if this is like a relatively new thing, but people that are supposed to be culturally trained and at least have some understanding and actually know how to provide this humanitarian effort because i mean you can just you can send any grunt to go lift boxes i mean any any single one of us are uh capable of doing that but when you have somebody like delta force you have somebody like the rangers they have a very specific set of skills that you know you a proper force utilization um, it doesn't. It doesn't seem to make sense to send a full combat force in for trying to help, you know, secure food, uh, food deliveries. But as the mission went in, you know, there's the talk about the, uh, the 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 radio station and how important that played. And a a movie and a book just came out that was on Netflix. It's uh, the siege at Jadoville. Uh, which is about this Irish, uh, they call it a battalion, but it might as well have been a company uh, that went into uh, one of these African provinces uh, that was basically at a war between the uh, the extraction companies looking for, I, I forget what it was, uranium or something like that, and uh, the, the NATO forces and what sparked off that incident was an attack on a radio station. And I think it plays back to our previous conversation about uh, information. It seems that a lot of these military actions are predicated upon either, you know, attacking the information distribution uh, processes or naval ships. Those seem to be the two biggest triggers for either war or conflict. Uh, like to hear your opinion. No, I, I think that the, certainly the fear that the radio station could be taken out and their only link to whatever group they're connected to through a deed is lost. I think that could be a very fearful thing, especially in a country that was three, three and a half years into a civil war, which is exactly what was happening. We didn't talk about it, that we were injecting ourselves into a civil war, but that that was the reality. Um, but yeah, the, the anything that, you know, groups used to communicate, um, taken in prisoners who were runners, um, especially if they're relatives of the people that are that are in charge. You know, all these things just, just build on people and especially on movements that are trying to change something politically. And so, yeah, the radio station is a, a, a definitely a, an obvious target and a, I, I would say a good one militarily, but a horrible one in a humanitarian sense. Yeah, I mean, 
we keep coming back to the context that's taken out of these movies. I mean, very rarely do we recognize that the very fact of U.S. military occupation and of U.S. military strikes actually feeds the insurgency, actually creates the enemy that becomes necessary to fight. The counterproductive nature of war on terror, which was always a ludicrous phrase, of course, that terror is a tactic, not a person, and you cannot defeat terror. But um, it was even it was even properly named for perpetual war. That's that's what's fascinating from the beginning. But um, absolutely, we subtract the fact that look, American strikes, American mistakes, um, American presence with sunglasses and helmets and machine guns on the streets creates a lot of the uh, problem itself, and it and it feeds an insurgency. It feeds a terrorist group. It feeds the nationalist um, rebel group or whatever. So I think these are important things to talk about. BT, if you want to take us through your uh, aviation thoughts, man. Uh, well, um, the the first thing I would say is it's very it's concerning the way that it was at least portrayed. Uh, it's been a while since I went through uh, the actual book, but portraying the, you know, the Blackhawks from flying about 12, 12 feet off the ground and, uh, you know, circling around over these things to the point where they're blowing dust in around. And I mean, that that's a horrible position to put yourself into, especially because, I mean, as far as things that are out on the battlefield that can be, you know, taken out by a single person with a single rifle shot, it is a helicopter. Uh, I mean, we don't have the speed. We are hovering. We, you know, there's times and places for that. Obviously, if you're doing fast rope operations, you have to be uh, low enough for the, uh, the exfil to happen. But this idea of just hovering over things for the sheer purpose of it uh i mean that's one of the things that really sets a bad uh bad idea as far as the the cinema cinema mm -hmm. aspect of uh these war movies um i know bt i know you and i talked a little bit before we got started recording about the ac-130 uh, not being not coming in, and so how would you see if if they said yes on the AC one thirty? Where would the where would the Blackhawks have been there? They would have been just completely out of the zone, wouldn't they? Because they would have been in the fire zone for the the one thirty. Oh yeah, I mean the whole concept of using the the AC one thirty gunship. I mean it to me it's preposterous because you know again you have what was it a hundred Rangers and uh, however many other supporting elements but you're going to have an AC-130 gunship as your next level, or, I mean, basically the only response. And like you said, to use that, you have to evacuate all of the uh, aircraft out of the area. So the C-2 bird, that has to go away. And they were the only line of communication because I don't think they had drones or satellite images. And I mean, they could barely communicate as it was. That was a big thing that it did hit which i appreciate through the mission uh when you're trying to co communicate between a ground convoy and then an aerial asset over to battalion communication over to brigade communication and then back over you know they showed it several times that they were missing turns because they didn't know 
where to go. I mean, apparently none of them looked at a map uh, before they did any of these uh, movements. But I mean, even if they did, you know, you have the dynamic aspect of the battlefield where they're blocking off the roads and lighting tires on fire. But that AC-130 gunship is not going to give you the, the tactical information that you need. It is simply there to put big holes into the ground. And that would not have been useful at all because they needed to be exfilled. There, there was no shortage of people trying to shoot at them. And you can, you can empty that AC-130 gunship and the troops on the ground are in no better of a position. So if if they had had it, you don't think it would have it would have been been any kind of a linchpin in the battle? No, I I think that it I think that it would have made it worse, um, especially being in the urban environment. The problem with the urban environment is you can't utilize your aviation assets like you do on a on, on just your you know, typical Cold War era tank on tank kind of battle where you can come in and do, you know, the Vietnam style uh, uh, Casavac and everything. You can't do that in an urban operation. And with the aircraft being so vulnerable, obviously the namesake of the movie is the Black Hawk, uh, Black Hawk Down. And that AC-130 gunship, how are you going to make sure that you don't hit the, uh, the downed aircraft? I mean, how are you going to... I, I don't know how well you can do, you know, close call for fire and everything, but as someone who was on the ground, I sure as hell wouldn't want an AC-130 gunship shooting in my general direction. I don't care how many people I'm going against. Yeah, at a, at a, at a certain point, we're just stacking assets... And, and trying trying our best to make it seem like we can completely control the battle space, which one thing that we haven't discussed, but that you just you just touched on about the that I'm assuming that the gold standard as far as medevac wasn't wasn't something that had come around then, but it's something that we've gotten used to in Afghanistan and Iraq because we generally do control the airspace in this circumstance there wasn't anything close to that because they could not safely enter and exit the battle space with the aircraft. Mm -hmm. The, I, I think the C2 bird uh, was a, was a really good kind of insight into what the aviation actually looks like on the battlefield. Uh, in my flight company, we had a, a, a aircraft that was specifically designed for C2 so it had the this really large computer uh, kind of deal where you would have three people, typically like some battalion level uh, staff officer, and then uh, you know whatever, whether it's artillery people or whatever for spotting. This giant computer that we had in the back the back of uh, the aircraft, and this was in 2011. This wasn't at the beginning of the fight. In 2011, this computer was like multi-million dollar piece of technology, and it was still running like Windows 95 as its sub-operating system. Like just 128 megabytes of RAM, just like complete, utter, useless uh, 
paperweight that you throw into the back of it and they think, oh, well, you know, it's got GPS, it's got the Blue Force tracker, it's got all these different radios and we can use the high freak on the, the, the Blackhawk and everything. It was never used because every single time it was utilized, there was no, there was no benefit for it because it was so slow, because it was so antiquated and with how quickly things move on the modern battlefield. And I mean, Danny, you, you can probably talk to this because you went through scout school as well. I mean, in 05, 06, when I went through basic training, I was taught Cold War tactics. We were not taught any of this new uh, counterinsurgency, General Petraeus being the, you know, the golden child of the military coming up with this idea. But, you know, we, we talked about it before. The more technology that comes, the more information everybody wants and the more information everybody wants the slower everything goes and the more options for uh, things to go wrong, like having two Blackhawks shot, shot down in a row because we just can't learn anything. Right. Yeah, we definitely learned Cold War tactics. I mean, we, we even called the green men that we shot on the range crazy Ivans, you know, because they, they made them look like Soviet soldiers. Mm-hmm. Um, Scouts in particular trained for a Cold War battlefield and a Cold War mission and then found themselves on the ground really as nothing more than lightly armored infantry. I mean, uh, which is about all most scout units became and just, you know, how to adjust their tactics. But uh, certainly everything that I was taught in the officer basic course and most of my time at West Point was, was uh, and at scout leader course or scout leader's course was, uh, yeah, definitely Cold War level tactics and very little on counterinsurgency. Uh, very little on urban warfare, for example, and much more on the plains of Europe, sort of anti-Soviet tactics. Mm-hmm. And I mean, we had we had a really good counterinsurgency kind of uh, primer, which was the Vietnam War, because that was nothing but a counterinsurgency operation, and. You know, just going back through the history and trying to figure out why things escalate, you know, trying to remove the vacuum uh, image. Uh, There's a book called Learning to Eat Soup with a Knife, and it basically overviews uh, a couple counterinsurgency operations. But one of the big thing was the British uh, Malaya emergency. Right. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so obviously the British went through their experiences and the French went through their experiences uh, for, you know, being a colonial superpower. And then we step into Vietnam and it was asked by the higher ups that, hey, you know, British guys who dealt with the Malaysia incident and then, uh, you know, the French soldiers come and give us like, you know, what, what are your te- what, what are your what are your suggestions and they got all the information, and at the end of the briefing, it pretty much just went into the trash can because none of them were uh, considered. Wh- I, I, however, you want to, however you want to look at it, it's just this isn't the American way of doing things. So we have to, you know, add our own flavor onto it, even though we're taking over the war from the guys who are here. Just like I, I think there was like a decade in between uh, the French. Uh, occupation and uh 
when we started to move in. Right. It goes back to, you know, this whole idea of, you know, having information and also uh, preventing specific information from getting out, you know, hiding these uh, I've lost a train of thought on that one. You know, it's um, it's true that we really threw out most of our um, collective military knowledge uh, about counterinsurgency after the Vietnam War, and we really just decided, well, we don't want to fight that. With I mean, it really came down to, well, we just won't do that again. Rather than saying, what can we learn from it? How can we? Um, integrated into our tactics. And so you're, you're right. And getting back to Black Hawk Down, what you're looking at there is, is largely um, an army trained for conventional war against the Soviets being dropped into a much different scenario. And it, it, it doesn't necessarily work out. I mean, like we see what happens with Black Hawks getting shot down through improvised efforts of the RPGs and et cetera. Um, you know, there weren't clear front lines. The, the battlefield was 360 degrees, but most of these guys had trained for even the Rangers, I mean, even though they were a more elite group, mostly trained for um, a battlefield that really only had 180 degrees, you know, basically a front and a rear. Um, so I think that that was another challenging aspect of this. It's, it's, it's still a lesson that we, you know, that our military hasn't learned in 2018. I mean, look, look what happen, what's happening on the ground in Afghanistan. We're, we're not doing anything good. The Taliban has more, more area in Afghanistan than, it, than I think it ever has in the war. Is that right, Danny? That's correct. So we don't. Uh, I, I go back to Churchill saying that that Americans always do the right thing after they've tried everything else. Um, you know, it, it, it we we believe in this blunt this blunt instrument of war, and it's not about changing your tactics for the war because the war is different, even though it is. It's about this American identity of destruction, and. I think hatred. I think that, that it, it, it all fits together in one very nasty pie. I think supposedly it was Albert Einstein who said that the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again, expecting a different result. And yet the story of at least the last 17 years of the American military and our foreign policy has been just that. It's the, the idea is that uh, there's a myth that we can create good outcomes through military force. And it never works, right? No. Because it, it never works. Unless you're fighting the Nazis, for the most part, war does not create positive outcomes, no matter how bad we want it to. But because we have a hammer, every problem looks like a nail. What is America good at? Well, we're good at fighting, right? We're good at fighting. We're not good at winning, but we're good at fighting and killing. We have great technology and really well-trained soldiers. And, uh, and we keep expecting the tool of war to give us the outcome of peace, and it never occurs. We're looking for peace, we're looking for security, and we get neither. We actually get less peace and more insecurity. So at a certain point, you have to ask the really naughty question of, is the problem militarism itself? Is the problem the application of force uh, to, to problems that are not, uh, that don't need force applied? Right? Oftentimes we take a problem, the problem is famine, or the problem is desertification, or the problem is, you know, uh, uh, drought. And we say, well, we'll fix it by sending our army, you know, and, and what we end up doing is fighting symptoms rather than cause them. But we do, we do have, we do have adaptability when the leaders actually want it. You know, it, it's pretty isolated as far as wars go, but World War II, our entire country 
changed in a whole bunch of ways to support the war. We and, and we developed different tactics. World War II was so so different from World War One, and there was actually adaptation as we went through it. But in this part now, it seems we got to, you know, when when Petraeus and Mattis put out coin, and all right, we have our counterinsurgency strategy. This is what's going to work. We just need to keep at it for the next ninety-seven years. Um, and so, you know, with, within the paradigm of the military, I think we are capable of change. But that change, if it does come, it's usually only because it's the strategy that we absolutely need in order to win. But yeah, crisis is what brings that forward. Yeah, we yeah. haven't really had crisis. Yeah, yeah. because the, the 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 truth is, and this is another one of my controversial statements that gets me in trouble. But like, America is not in any real danger. No. I mean, yes, terrorism is a threat. But it's not an existential threat. Uh, terrorism will always exist, but we're not making it any better by applying our military force around the world. And all we're doing is alienating more and more Muslims. Uh, usually they're Muslims, sometimes they're Arabs. Uh, that tends to be what we do. Um, and it is insanity. It, 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 it is insanity. And we really are only adaptable when the, when the entire American people are feeling the weight of a war, whether that be through increased taxes or uh, just blood and treasure that's lost to a conscripted draft army where everyone is involved but so long as we have a professional force that the king or the president and I'm not that's not about I'm not talking about this president all presidents are becoming increasingly imperial in their power on foreign policy you know can just use the military as as a tool um, and uh, the military can bang its head against the wall for like you said 97 years and no one seems to notice or care yeah so no one really knows what we're doing anymore no one really knows what we're trying to accomplish in Afghanistan anymore we're there because we're there reason for the war becomes well because we're there you yep. know and uh and no one has the political courage because that's what it would take a political courage to just pull us out yeah talking about you know the i and obviously i can't speak for the other services but being in the army and i was mentioned that the army is a hammer and you see that there's no there's no flexibility at all uh is when I went when I went through uh, scout school, uh, we had probably five or six former. Uh, I think it was fourteen Romeo. I don't know if it's still the same, but the Patriot uh, anti-aircraft guys, and right. you know, just like talking about redefining the the roles of the scouts. These guys were said, or they told them, "Hey, you know, we're not shooting down any aircraft, so grab your gun and go start kicking in doors." And I mean. One one of the guys was a uh, was a, a staff sergeant, and he just told me because I was like, why why are you here if you were in you know you were in like a leadership role in your job and you knew everything, and it was because you know I'm being sent to do a job that I was not trained for with guys who were not trained to do it. So if I'm going to be made to do this role, my job doesn't exist anymore. Then I'm going to at least theoretically do it with people who know what they're doing and then as the war progresses you know you see okay well we don't need air defense artillery anymore we don't need uh you know 155s anymore but now uh just a couple days ago uh i think it was the modern war institute uh some some infantry captain came out writing this article about how we need to revitalize the artillery and his little intro to it is basically, you know, 
all right, imagine you have this military unit, they're entrenched and everyone's tired. And all of a sudden, all hell rains down. Russians lobbing thermonuclear, uh, thermobaric bombs and everything, and how every soldier will die in 10 minutes uh, because we don't have enough artillery. And it just seems so preposterous that the areas that money should be going to, the money's not going to, but we have money all day for dropping big artillery pieces. And I mean, it, it kind of reminds me of, you know, the whole C, the AC-130 gunship uh, thing with, uh, with Black Hawk Down. Does having a larger and larger hammer actually accomplish anything? And I mean, I don't think it does at all except creating more problems. I think right, right. Some, some of our inability to move on is is definitely on the part of the military industrial complex um you have the army still you know keeping us flush in abrams and apcs and vehicles that have absolutely no place or purpose in a counterinsurgency war but we continue to buy them um we have uh, new military elements going into they're talking about a base in poland um the guys the 300 marines that are in norway um you know, a lot of Cold War era buildup in that way. And I think that that's part of the problem is that companies and locations get bogged down by becoming part of the industrial complex. And then when it's time to change and jobs have to go somewhere else, it becomes a different question. But we're not actually supplying what soldiers need. We're supplying what politicians want to write off for, for their constituents and and. I'm sure it's a very old story, but that's that's. I think that's a big part of this. I mean, the F-35s that were going into the most recent military budget. I mean, um, I'm not saying we shouldn't have next generation fighters, but the, this preposterous idea that we're going to have a great land war with Russia and we have to be prepared, and therefore we can't pay for education anymore, but we can certainly pay for extra F-35s. I mean, it's a fantasy, but. America doesn't create anything anymore, and here I go on my rants again, but you know, the difference between now and the 1950s is that now made in the USA is a slogan, whereas back then it was a reality. Yeah, most yeah. of the industrial output in the world was American. We don't make anything anymore, but you know what we still make here? Guns and bombs. We are, are one of our largest industries now is the arms industry. We're the number one arms dealer in the world, and we sell those arms to at least a dozen countries that are on like watch lists for poor human rights records. And uh, so there's no way to look at any of this without um, the military industrial complex. And I'll, ta and I'll take it a step further, and now I'm going to link Hollywood back in. Look, Hollywood sells heroism and militarism in these movies today. These movies aren't about the human condition. They're not complex. They don't tell us context. They're about, look how cool our gear is. Mm -hmm. Look how brave our soldiers are. Yep. And, and it really becomes... A propaganda ad, just like a 90-minute propaganda ad for the military industrial complex, because it all feeds through the same network. Look, young man, look how cool war is. Join Army. Now that I'm joining Army, now that I have more soldiers, I need more gear, and it keeps the cycle going, right? So the military yeah. industrial complex never stops, and it works hand-in-hand. -hand. You could even call it the military-industrial-congressional-Hollywood complex, because I would argue they're all uh, complicit. Absolutely. And I think that this, that... Um some of the connections that the film had to 
um, DOD and the steps that they had to take in, in cutting out certain parts of the script, making sure that nobody was cursing in an inappropriate way, you know, lots of death and destruction, but we can't make dirty jokes like soldiers make. Um, um, but yeah, no, it, I, I think that we need to get in a mindset like uh, looking at college professors who have military ties and push certain things in their classes that it's the same for filmmakers. You know, we can't look at people like Michael Bay or Jerry Bruckheimer or some of the other, you know, consistent people to make these kind of movies as not being complicit because they are. They're more than intelligent enough to understand their part in this whole system. And um, it's kind of terrifying because I, I know how impressionable I was when I saw this film. And we're still going through that process today. There, there is, there's no contrast. The, the, the platoon of our generation, Danny, like you mentioned, it's, it's where would we go? Where would a 17 or 18-year-old go to find some truth in military service today? Aside from our podcast. Yeah, unless he, goes to, unless he goes to foreign films or documentaries, yeah. he's not going to find it because we don't tell truth in our, uh, in our film industry. What we do is we glorify war. And nothing excites young men who live in a patriarchy more than exciting war films. Because I'm, a, I'm guilty of it. You're guilty of it. I played with too many G.I. Joes. I mean, quite yeah. frankly, that's part of the reason I do what I do. You know, talking about trying to make all of this appealing to young men, but then trying to contrast it with the reality balancing that coolness factor uh, and trying to hook it back into the movie. Uh, there's the scene where uh, one of the helicopters is dropping in Rangers and there's a guy with an RPG uh, that's in some scaffolding or uh, like uh, a skeleton of a building that's being constructed. And uh, the, the pilot says, Hey, you know, I've got this guy and they, uh, they pivot and the crew chief shoots and kills them. The, the, the crew coordination, in my opinion, was okay. But looking at the weapon that he was using, because it, it, what it, the, the GAU, the, the minigun, whatever you want to call it, it's, you know, this big souped up version of a, uh, you know, a, a medium, medium machine gun. But this, this particular weapon i don't have you, either of you guys ever worked with the the minigun no i never got to i i had a um special forces green beret team attached to my um living on the same camp as us in afghanistan they actually had one like on one of their vehicles believe it or not kind of awesome but uh, i never personally used it i just watched them use it well kind of the same thing for me and in, in iraq we were training uh the uh, the Iraqi army and we had to do one class of Iraqi special forces. So they brought the the special forces trainers over, and you know on their Humvee they had they had this thing set up, and uh, so they were letting us all uh, play with it. And this thing is just a piece of junk. Um, I mean it 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 requires some type of a battery or a power uh, input which you know it's it's all great because it's just you know shooting out thousands of rounds but trying to think from the practicality standpoint how long are you going to be able to hold that trigger 
in an aircraft that doesn't have an unlimited amount of ammunition to be stored on top of it. And additionally, something that was shown and was a huge factor for me and, you know, my PTSD and everything is I spent every moment that I was not on the ground trying to figure out, okay, if Blackhawk happened, Blackhawk down happens and we crash into that opening, what am I going to do? You know, going through all of these scenarios. And one big thing that you run into uh, most most of my other fellow crew chiefs never gave it a second thought. But if you go down, now all of a sudden you're the biggest target on the battlefield. And I had an M16, and my pilots had M4s. But I've got this machine gun sitting in front of me. Now, if I had the minigun, I have a big giant paperweight. But if I have a 240 Hotel, which is just a 240 Bravo with uh, butterfly grips on it like a 50 cal, I can at least utilize this weapon on the ground and something that nobody in my unit, like I was the first person to ask, I was like, Hey, is there a thing to make this into a 240 Bravo? And like, Oh yeah, you know, there's a, there's a ground conversion kit, which gives you back your butt stock and your, uh, your trigger assembly. Well, I was like, yeah, you know, let me, I'm going to carry that along with me because if my aircraft goes down, I could, probably use some type of you know uh an an area suppression weapon that could have made some difference i mean obviously you you run to a point where you run out of ammunition but how much better do you think them uh trying to protect the the blackhawk crash sites if you had you know a couple medium machine guns trying to give down cover as opposed to, you know, throwing rocks at them or, you know, the most, every pilot and every crew chief that I flew with, they carried no ammunition. Like no one gave a second thought of like, oh, hey, what happens if I crash? What happens if I get shot down? Most of my fellow crew chiefs, they were lucky if they carried two 30 round magazines because they complained about how heavy it is. I mean, flight gear is far, far lighter and far superior to like the IOTVs and everything. And still got have guys sitting down and they can't consider uh, what happens when my aircraft doesn't land when we want it to. And you, uh, it, it shows the actual culture of the aviation uh, units in the military that they're, even when we have these movies, and I mean, when I was in Afghanistan was when Extortion 17 went down. It still never changed anything. So you have the, the cinema that gets everyone excited, and then they join the military. But then when the cinema turns into reality, all of a sudden it doesn't phase them anymore. Right, right. That's an interesting point. No, I, I think that I think that what you just described is the is overall the natural conclusion of most military jobs is that you you come to a point that no matter what kind of preparedness you see as important you you ultimately hit a ceiling where between what your chain of command mandates you do 
and what you feel is the next step that needs to be better, which I had some of my own when I was in Iraq. Um, it, it's really, really fucking frustrating. And BT, I can't imagine, man, being in country and with extortion 17 going down and the weight of that and how it factored into your remaining time at country. Oh, I mean, it. I never even considered it. I mean, it wasn't... I got out in 2014 and apparently my, I never talked to my wife ever about the military because, uh, you know, about a year ago I started, you know, like opening up and telling these stories. And, uh, you know, every time I do it, my wife would just be staring at me and I, I would be like, you know, well, what's the thing? She's like, Oh, well, you never told me that. Or you know, that, that sounds pretty dangerous. And I think it's easy for, us going into the military, going into a combat zone, that everything is normal for us. I know, uh, Henry, you and I had a, a conversation where I, I had, uh, I had asked you if you felt the same way that I did. And as a scout, couple, couple, uh, a couple of missions in, it was to the point that I was like, I don't care what happens. Like to me, at that point to the unit, I could have given less than shit, but I need action. I need something to fulfill the void that is not being in combat. And to the point that I was praying that any vehicle around us was an IED that went off or a VBID just to break that monotony. And I mean, at the time, it seemed perfectly rational to me, but then you take a step back and you get some years of, uh, exterior uh, perception and you realize how fucking psycho that line of thought is that a normal person doesn't have you know those kind of wishes and desires and that's one of the things that really makes it difficult for someone watching a two hour cinema event as opposed to actually living it and actually uh, experiencing it to know that all of these things that they try to show us with fancy weapons and not giving any background, just saying, Hey, these people are bad. Let's go shoot them. I just don't think that 99% of the population has no idea how to handle that kind of, uh, that kind of insight, that kind of, you know, thought process. And even, I think even if we had, uh, you know, hour long, you know, uh, whatever the, the, the new Vietnam documentary that just came out, Ken Burns or whatever, even if you right. had that, and even if you somehow cut through all the partisan bullshit and you cut through all of the, uh, the, the Hollywood and the one-sidedness and you get a clear, absolute picture, you're still not going to understand. Because if you've never experienced it, you have no frame of reference. And frame of reference for most people for what the military is, is Black Hawk Down. Right. No, they, they, they want us to believe that. They want us to believe that your average civilian can go to the movie theater, spend two and a half hours watching a film, and they now have enough distilled knowledge for what they want them to see about the military. 
and it and and like you said is that without actual frame of reference you can't understand those things had you not explained to danny and i today the aviation aspects of that um we we wouldn't have any concept of it because it just wasn't part of our mission and so this is this continual compartmentalization but the people that decide what gets compartmentalized and what doesn't are way, way, way above. And it, it just, it, 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 it makes it so nebulous that people just can't know anything. You know, the soldiers on the ground can't know anything. They don't really have an actual good look at it. Like we've been talking today about the film that the, the, what had actually the events that had transpired prior to the battle, um, they weren't covered. They weren't mentioned at all. And so, if we can, you know, if they could just hand this perfect pie to people and say, here, here's your military. It's ugly and it's hard, but this is actually what it is. People believe that. They want to. They want to believe that the military is a force for good. I think Chris Hedges has a book uh, titled something to that effect about the how civilians. Yeah, war is a force that gives us meaning. That's it. That's it. Yeah. In and, the name of the book. And, and it does. It, 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 we, we, we attach all the, you know, the army values. We attach all this meaning, all these these morality points that we think are important, but they're not. They're not. They're not ever actually treated as such throughout it. It's just do what you're told and deal with it in your own way when the VA doesn't get funded. Absolutely. It's all part of the same thing. I mean, that's why this conversation about Black Hawk Down is so fascinating because it it. It connects all the pieces that are the puzzle that is American militarism. I think there's a, a really powerful scene, or what could be a powerful scene, that is just kind of completely glossed over. Uh, I forget, there, because in the movie you had the two machine gunners who were kind of uh, you know, left on their little corner, which is a whole... Uh, tactical question that I have to ask about, but you also had another, I think it was a sergeant, uh, that kind of got, um, separated from everybody and he ends up like going into this room and there's this family there and it's the mother and the kids and they're all huddled together. And he like, I don't know, he gives them a high five or something and he goes out the back door and I, I, uh, this kid pops up with an AK 47 uh, and he ends up shooting, but he ends up killing his father. And I, they showed that for a second, and then they just brush right past it. And I think that could have been something that, you know, this is a casualty that was just caused by this, uh, in between this family member, because of us being there. And I think it's the, you know, going back to, you know, dying in vain and everything. How can you say that you're this, you know, liberating force when you're causing, uh, you know, family members to shoot each other? Obviously not intentionally, but intention doesn't matter as opposed to what happens because intention isn't going to bring that fictional child's, uh, parent back but there was just absolutely no there was no emotion at all built into that and it just goes to be another you know faceless other yeah i thought that was the strongest scene in the whole movie and it happened so quick 
And if there was more like that, I would have I would have uh, liked the movie more now, you know, looking back, because I think that was a rare glimpse of what could have been mm-hmm. um, because it showed the it showed the um, powerlessness of the Somali people. And it showed that the Somali people were victims, really, as much as as much as the Rangers were and maybe even more so that the true I mean, the true victim in the in the Black Hawk Down story really should be the Somali people because mm-hmm. thousands of them died in the battle um, by some estimates and millions of them died in the famine. So, um, and, and, and there's no way with all the firepower the Rangers and Delta were pouring down in defense, obviously. I know they were they were defending themselves, so I'm not taking that away from them, but there's no way all that firepower didn't kill a whole bunch of civilians in a place as densely populated as Mogadishu. There was also that... Uh short scene pretty close to this one where that sergeant finds those two machine gunners that have been separated and one of the machine gunners actually shoots at the sergeant because at the moment they think that he might be a a combatant and they scream at each other and they figure out they're all on the same team and they get together but that could have easily been a horrible friendly fire incident and the fact that the machine gunner actually stopped and, and looked and, 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 and recoiled at the possibility that might have been his teammate, I think that was a powerful thing. But again, we, we, we went past it so quickly that there wasn't really a thought about it. It was like, oh, thank God they didn't shoot each other. Now we're back on to the combat thing. But it completely sidesteps the huge issue of friendly fire and how often people in the military deal with it. And it, it is a, a frequent occurrence. It's not some kind of freak thing that happens once every 27 years. It happens in... in Every conflict. Um, Pat Tillman. Pat Tillman was killed by friendly fire. My. Uh, lie about it. Yeah, uh, my friend uh, Jesse Berger, from uh, who uh, he was killed in May of '04 in Iraq. He was killed by friendly fire uh, by the Polish. Um, so it's it, it's it's a it's a really important point to to note here that somehow in this whole thing that there was no friendly fire, but that it was right there at the cusp and it is almost in any, any mission just because of the nebulous nature of it. And I believed in the Gulf war, the Persian Gulf war, um, at least half of American casualties actually did result from friendly fire. I mean, there weren't a lot of casualties in general, but if I, if I got my statistics right, I think at least half wow. of friendly fire incidents, mostly, um, air aircraft shooting our own tanks and Bradley. Yeah. Um, misidentifying them. Yeah, it's, it's really, it's, it's all interesting stuff. Well, fellas, I, oh, go ahead, BT. That, the whole thing with the machine gunners, like, like really uh, ruffles my feathers because, you know, obviously there, there was chaos and everything on the ground. We got that. But at some point, leadership and training should be able to prevent you from losing. Not only did you lose two soldiers, but, I mean, you lost two mm-hmm. soldiers with, some of the heaviest weapons that you have on the battlefield, like that's a horrible tactical loss to the point that these, these guys don't even know if they're supposed to run to the Humvee or if the Humvees come to them. And then it just, I feel like they devolved that whole scene into a joke because you know, you've, any of us who have been around a 240 shooting, we know how, how damn loud it is and shooting next to uh, standing next to 249 we know how loud it is we know that you know it causes trauma to the body because of the the shockwave blast 
And then it comes down to, oh, hey, you're hurting my ears. Stop shooting that next to my head when they're literally back to back shooting a moment before. And then uh, some enemy comes up and one of the two like shoots over uh, the other guy. And then every scene after that, when they showed the machine gunner and when they showed, you know, almost shooting the uh, the sergeant, he's just standing there like, ah, like making all these retarded noises, uh, obviously trying to indicate that he can't hear because of the, you know, the tinnitus and everything. But just... I don't feel like it does a good uh, portrayal. Obviously, that no military, no military movie is going to, you know, people talking uh, on the Blackhawk, uh, pilots talking to the Rangers in the back with no headsets on, and everyone gets it. Uh, you can't hear anything. You, you, you can't hear anything in a Blackhawk. You have to have two layers of hearing protection because of how loud. It is. And I mean, it wasn't until recently that uh, we'd gotten a system called a pass through where we had microphones on either side of our flight helmet and we could actually listen to people that are trying to talk to us because you're under the rotor disc. So you have you know, that fog of war essentially being put over your inability to hear, whether it's on an aircraft, whether it's next to a machine gun. But this really, I mean, dangerous scenario where you can't hear is just kind of made into a joke. And I mean, it's just another thing that people don't realize that you know, this is a much bigger issue than the way that the media is portraying it. The, uh, um, yeah, no, that, that whole scene is, isn't dissected very well. The, the, the guys are left behind by their squad leader, which, if that was actually to happen in a tactical situation, like you said, they absolutely should know where they're going and how they're getting there. And you, I didn't notice before that that Eversman was concerned about where they were. Now, again, he had lots of shit to handle right then. I'm not putting that on him personally, but there certainly is that, you know, that dissection in battle where you can only focus on one thing at one given time, depending on what it is. So, um, and then of course that one dude, he, uh, when they finally made it back to Eversman, he was the last guy across the street and his, a grenade of some kind got shot in his backpack and went off. Um, so, oh, and doing first aid out in the middle of the street, doing first aid on somebody, they're bleeding to death and we are standing in the middle of the firefight as opposed to dragging this guy who we shouldn't move, but at this point, if we want to save his life, there's, there's no option to some kind of fucking cover. But that's not what happens. They just right there, and then the Humvees come. And, of course, they sit in the middle of the street, which gives a tiny bit of cover, I guess. Um, but it, it, in no way was there a natural military reaction to that. That didn't, that didn't happen in a way that we would have dealt with because immediately we're looking for cover. We're looking for somewhere, some kind of effing safety. So... But yeah, I'm, I'm glad you brought up that blast pressure thing, and that's a, a topic that we don't talk about much, too, is that you don't have to be in combat to do that. It's simply using the weapon system or the aircraft, in your case, that it, it just, the use of the device is enough to cause damage, but, but that's, it completely gets missed. I, I've got, I have, like, 
I, I don't even know. I think I have like three different uh, injuries to my ears and my hearing. And, uh, you know, it, it just came from the fact that when you're uh, it's something as simple as working on the flight line and just, you know, uh, say you're changing the oil in the Blackhawk, if the aircraft in the next pad over starts up, it's uh, call it the APU, the auxiliary power unit, which is like the first step in getting the aircraft running. Um, it's a jet engine that is going off and we never had hearing protection. I mean, you know, and the army says, Oh, well, or the, the, the common VA thing is, well, it's up to you to keep your hearing protected. So if you lose your hearing, well, that's on you, which is, you know, in my opinion, utter garbage because we weren't even provided with something as simple as hearing protection. So, you know, going back again, all these fancy hammer-like weapons, but we don't have hear- hearing protection. But that's not sexy. That's not that's not a cool thing. The only time that you want to hear that is you want to hear that little bit of tinnitus sound when a bomb goes off occasionally. But I mean that that's not how it works. No, no, not in the least. There actually there was a settlement. Um, with 3M, early, I think it was earlier this year, that the earplugs, a set of earplugs they had sold to the Army were defective. And I can't remember how many millions of sets that they sold. But, and and, and, and the, the crucial point of that is that, okay, cool, we've, we've attempted to solve this hearing, hearing problem, but now you're using shit. But again, like you said, is that it, the onus is placed on the soldier to protect those things. That if you got a concussion from using a, a, a giant machine gun or flying in an aircraft, well, too bad that's on you. But like you said, it's not sexy. That's not a, a sexy part of a war. That's not a, a manly part of a war. So it gets stepped to the side over and over again. Well, fellas, I think, uh, I think I've run out of topics. Do you guys have anything else you want to want to bring up? No, I'm. No, I think we're good. Yeah. All right, cool. Well, uh, BT, I want to thank you for joining us. It was is awesome to sit here and, and chat with you, and uh, especially to hear about your your experiences in aviation. Um, I hope you can come back on the podcast sometime and chat with us again about other stuff. Thank you for joining us today. Please come join the conversation at www.fortressonahill.com. You can also find us on Twitter at Fortress on a Hill or on Facebook at www.facebook.com forward slash Fortress on a Hill. We want to hear from our listeners about the topics and issues pertinent to America's military and veteran communities. And last but certainly not least, analyze your news and its sources very closely. Verify everything you read, and remember that no one, no matter how powerful, are above criticism, especially those with the power to send others into harm's way. We'll see you next time.